Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Ms. Donna, it's so good to have you here. We've missed you. Yes. All right. Wow. Jesus done forgave all our sin. <laughs> yes. We about to talk about it. We about to talk about it. Yes. Mm. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful. We're so thankful. We're so thankful that Jesus has paid for all our sin. And, and we, we gather here today as your people, eager, eager, eager to give all we can to him. We cannot repay you for what you've given to us, but it is such a joy for us to give you all the glory we can give. We pray, Lord, that you would use today to forward that in each of our lives. We pray for those who are here today. We know they're here today who do not know the freedom of sin forgiven, who do not know how wonderful it is to have all your sins paid for, who don't know the blessedness of those whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered up. We pray that they would know that today. We pray for us who do, that you would help us to think better about how to show that with the rest of our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? I can't hear through all the mass, so Jesus got to give it the hearty push through. Well, um, another message, as I shared last time, I only have a couple more Sunday messages with you. Uh, they say that a man's dying words are some of his most important words. I'm not dying yet uh, that I know of. We're all dying in some way. Um, amen? Um, but I do feel the limitation of what I get to keep saying. Um, and that's where these, these few messages have come from. Like if I can only say a few things. What are the few things I would say? What would I use my time to try to remind you of, encourage you in? And that's why last week we thought about the importance of the means of grace. And this Sunday, I just want to remind you of the centrality of forgiveness among the people of God. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, which will be the verse we'll be looking at, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. This will be our text for today. Before I read it, though, I wonder if you've ever heard any dramatic overstatements before. If you know me, yes, you have. If you know anyone in my family, really. Uh, <laughs> 
How about when someone says, this is the most important verse in the Bible? How about when someone says, this is the best sandwich I've ever had in my life? Or when in conflict, someone says, you never listen to me. Or also in conflict, you always think you're right. Right, those are the easy to recognize, easy to spot exaggerations. But not all big statements are overstatements. Some truths are exactly as big as they sound. We have such a big truth that is not overstated, but is exactly as big as it sounds in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. The apostle writes and says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We see in the text, and I'm going to try to look at it in a few different points. The points are loose, though. Sorry, note takers, and especially in jazz, you too. Um, uh, but I want to look at love as a priority, uh, love in perpetuity, and then love and what it produces. Um, again, the text says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In the Greek, the word that says all actually means all. Uh, each and every part. Uh, this is in fact a very big claim. Uh, what our text is holding out to us is that Peter wasn't just grouping this charge in with other charges he, he pronounced it. He promoted it to have a unique priority among them. He was ascribing a special rank to this charge in the church. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do in the church. There's a lot of things we should do in the church. But above all, there is something we must do in the church, and that is keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I mean, you will be successful, RCF, if above all, you keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And it's wonderful to have sins forgiven. Covering sins changes the whole storyline. You know, we read of some of the people we love in the Bible, but we know the truth about them. But somehow when they're talked about, the sins aren't brought up. Like the steadfastness of God's servant, Job. And we're like, what? Or consider Abraham who hoped without wavering. We're like, 
What? That's because we're hearing the story as told through the love of God. And love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, there's a, a software, it's called VidAngel. I would like to commend it to you. It's a, I believe it's a Christian streaming program that you could stream your Netflix, HBO, Amazon. And what you do is it's a service that works with your other services, but you can, you can cut out anything in movies that you want. So there's a movie that has inappropriate things in it. You can select a filter and it will just cut it all out of the movie. It will all, you'll watch the movie and it will be R on the, on the description, but it'll be PG when you watch it. You can, you can just watch something and it just remove all the stuff you don't want to see. Well, they took that idea from God. Uh, that's what happens when God washes people by the gospel. He, their life gets pressed through his filtering system, through the blood of Christ. And when it comes out on the other side, all the sins are gone. Just a movie with no sins. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. They're removed from the narrative. Praise God. And that's supposed to be something of what we're committed to do in the church, how we're committed to be postured towards each other and treat each other. We apply that love filter on each other. I mean, it's really interesting to consider the context of this book and the context specifically of the passage that we're looking at. If you're familiar with uh, Peter's letter to the exiles, in the dispersion, you know that he's writing to suffering saints, and in it is a call for sober-mindedness. Uh, so often in this letter, uh, the call for the believers is to lift their gaze above and beyond their current moment and to fix their eyes on that coming glory. Uh, this is largely the point of 1 Peter as a letter. You can just hear it whenever you read chapter 1. And if you remember, we did a series on this even when uh, COVID started. So we, we, we know the end of 1 Peter chapter 5. Remember just, just that, that context. You know, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, comfort, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is, this is what the letter of Peter is doing. It's calling them to, to look to, to, to endure suffering, looking to God, who's going to confirm, going to strengthen, going to establish, and going to bring them to his eternal glory. It contains the encouragement to the saints that they are the people of God. Despite how people are treating them, despite how they might feel, they are the people of God. And it has a reminder that God will safely retrieve each and every one of his people and bring them home. And so throughout this letter is an appeal for them to think on the things to come and to live as citizens of that world unseen. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 begins, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He goes down to verse 13 saying, Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And much of chapter 1, much of chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 is Peter giving clarity to what that looks like. What does a life look like that has its hope fully set on the grace to be brought at the revealing of Jesus Christ? Well, this letter is filled with what it looks like to be an exile in the world, knowing that you are an excellent one who is a saint of God. And if you read 1 Peter, and I would encourage you to do it this afternoon, it'll take, I don't know, 15 minutes maybe. We find that there's just a lot to do and think about. There's much to be concerned with in this letter. I mean, even in the immediate context of our passage in 1 Peter 4, 7, if you just look at verse 7, it's, we find it's, it's important to view life eschatologically. That's relating to things of the, the last times, right? Meaning to think in light of the end of things. Uh, he says there, right there in verse 4, I mean, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, remember, the end of all things is at hand. Peter says an appropriate effect this is to have is sober-mindedness, being self-controlled, being constant in prayer, which, which kind of sounds like what he talked about in chapter 1. And then Peter says something fairly interesting to me, and that is what he says in verse 8. He says, look, you are sojourners and exiles. Look, you are grieved by various trials. Look, there is insult and opposition to the cause of Christ. Look, there is manifold suffering for all the saints and look at all the brotherhood they all must suffer a little while and and yes the end of all things is at hand and what that means is we must respond in a lot of important ways yes we must be holy and blameless yes we must suffer well like good soldiers of Jesus Christ yes we must submit to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake and yes, that will mean enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Whether that call to humble holiness is in our marriages or toward our magistrates, we're called to always in our hearts and in our lives be honoring Christ the Lord as holy, ever ready to make a defense for the hope that we have. But in verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter ascribes this unique priority and a unique focus on one specific activity. And he says, above all, so above all that, above those other things that are essential, they are important. He also adds though, but above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above your concerns of the lost world you walk in, above that, be committed to the church that you're united to, existing and uh, being affectionate of them in a certain way. Those called and kept by the love of Christ are called to keep showing it. It's our most powerful weapon. Look at its priority above all which is just really wild to think about for a second. Above all, it's interesting, you hear a lot of Christians are talking about what to do and what we got to do as they sound just like a first Peter book. It's just, we should, we, we should be hearing above all though. Above all, make sure you loving the people of God. 
Love is to be greatly prized because of its greatness. Peter wasn't the only one who thought love belonged in a chief spot or was a chief virtue. You remember the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love, they abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now love is great because of its usefulness, right? Paul went on to say, love is always useful. Love is always useful. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. And love hopes all things. Now, love is great because of its usefulness. Love is great because of its endurance. We're told love never ends. But it's not just its usefulness. It's not just endurance. It's love is great because of how all-encompassing it is. Love is an essential summary or it's essential rather in the summary of our, of our entire commitment to God. You know, if you were to summarize your obligation to God, your obligation to others, you could do that by, by saying love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's all-encompassing. Jesus said on these two commands depends the entire law and prophets. But love is just not all-encompassing command for the old covenant, but for the new as well. The Lord Jesus said shortly before his death, in a new commandment I give to you, and that's that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The most powerful attraction that you have to, to bring people to not just believe that you know God, but what you say about God is actually how you treat the people of God. This is how you'll know who knows me. Look at how they love those who know me. And watch them and you will see they look like me. Because Jesus has a distinct look, doesn't he? Because Jesus' love forgives. And ultimately, this is all the case, again, the specialness of love, because love is of God. Which is what the Apostle John plainly states, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because, huge statement, God is love. Don't reverse it, because that's heresy. Love is not God. God is love. It comes from him. It reflects him. It's his. Which is why we can only love people and things the way God says to, because he's the only one that knows how to love. It has a unique pr priority among the people of God, but people, but uh, excuse me, uh, and Peter's emphasizing something crucial, right? It's, 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 it's not just all of these things that make love such a priority. It's, it, 
It's also what love does that makes love such a priority. Then that verse says love covers a bunch of sin. And we'll get back to that in a second. There's many things that love does. Many things that love does. Even as the passage will go on to, to say, look at verse 19 quickly, right? Love fuels hospitality. Or as it keeps going, love fuels service to the glory of God. But here Peter wants the saints to know there is a chief expression of love, and that is that love forgives sin. Again, we don't just see its priority, we see its perpetuity. It, the fact that it's perpetuated, it, it keeps going. The text says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Not start, because it assumes if you say that happened already. What he's saying is don't change the game plan up. Suffering, don't change the game plan up. Persecution, don't change the game plan up. Confusion doesn't change the game plan up. Keep loving one another earnestly. Regardless of what we're going to go through in our life or when we go through it in our life or what we endure as a society or what we experience as it regards persecution towards the people of God or even whatever changes we might experience in the life of our little local church. What we are called to do, what we are supposed to do, what we are commanded to keep as the task above all else is to keep loving one another earnestly. And that earnestly means to love one another with fervency, intensity, eagerly, constantly. Those that the love of God transformed is supposed to show the love of God. Supposed to shine forth from them. Part of why we're here is to show what God's like. And the most potent way we do that is actually in how we love the brethren. I mean, how Peter describes the people of God is quite high and exalted. And that's appropriate. What he's trying to do in this letter is to lift their attention, lift their gaze, lift even their identity from how the world gives it to them and get it from God. Get it from God. Because when you understand who you are before the Lord, then you'll start to act like you know him. We'll act more consistently with what he commands. Listen to some of the descriptions Peter's used to describe the people of God in this letter. There are those who are his chosen ones, those who have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They are those who have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, born of the living and abiding word of God. They are those who are living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and who offer spiritual sacrifices holy to God, holy acceptable, excuse me, to God through Jesus Christ. They are those who are now his people who have now received mercy. They are those who are called beloved. They are those who have been healed by the wounds of Christ when he bore our sins in his body on the tree. There are those who were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. There are those who have been brought to God through Christ because he suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Uh, there are those who understand that through everything, 
God should be glorified through Jesus Christ. There are those who can exclaim with Peter at the end of verse 11, to him be gone glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is part, in his mind, of being a partaker of grace is having an eagerness to love those who also are partakers of grace. One of the things grace produces is people who are eager to lavish that grace on those who have received that grace. Peter communicated this very idea earlier in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since, since you know what happened to you? You was born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, which Peter identifies in verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Saints are obligated to show this love and every saint is entitled to receive this love from you. I was thinking about Acts 16. It's, and this is one reason why we, 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 we talk about the importance of forgiveness and bitterness when we take the Lord's Supper. It's, it's quite a concerning thing for a Christian to not love another Christian earnestly. To not cover sin, even a lot of it. Because Jesus has given that to them. And part of our job as his body is to remind and to reflect to each other what Jesus has given to us. And we should be really nervous about not doing that. Uh, I was talking about Acts 16. You know, citizens got this. It was a big deal for you to mistreat a Roman citizen. Paul had got arrested. They beat Paul up. Then they tried to secretly let Paul go. And Paul was like, no. Y'all done mistreated me and you want to send me out in the silence of night and I'm a Roman citizen? And the text says that the, it says the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Romans don't treat Romans that way. It's by law they cannot treat Roman citizens that way. You deal with that, you got to deal with Caesar. Beloved, the principle holds true in the church. You can't just not forgive someone because it's hard. You can't just not forgive someone because you don't want to or because you're hurting. Because it's not about us, but about him. Jesus wanted this to be on the saint's mind all the time. So much so, it's supposed to be your regular companion in prayer. They said, Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus says, when you pray, say this. When you, when you pray, say this. And this doesn't mean you need to say line for line in prayer. It does mean it gives shape to what we're supposed to carry into prayer. 
Right, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Right, we, we know that. Praise God, he's holy. May his will be done. God, give us what we need. What's the next part? Forgive us. But it's not just forgive us. It's forgive us like we forgive. He doesn't just say, forgive us, Lord. He says, forgive us like we forgive others. We're supposed to carry that commitment in our communion with God. We're never allowed to stop loving. And we should never want to stop loving. But we do. And it's important we identify it as what it is. It's of the flesh. It's of sin. And it doesn't honor the Lord. He says, keep, 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 keep loving one another earnestly. It's, it's needed to be said today. He's assuming that they were doing it. Keep loving one another. And if you stopped, if you stopped, the solution is simple. Repent and restart. Because what's wonderful about the Lord is when we repent, he loves earnestly. And he's eager to cover sin. Again, love has a priority and it has a perpetuity. Those two things are to continue, that priority and that it keeps going. And that's because at least Peter's drawing their attention to what it produces. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> Think about how wonderful, how wonderful the world would be if all sin was covered. One day it will be that because there won't be no sin, right? We'll get to experience how full the covering of sin happens. The removal of sin will be now that's not where we are, but churches are supposed to be lands where all sin gets covered. Not covered up like it didn't happen, didn't affect. Covered for Christ's sake. What you do is important and why you do it is important. Forgiveness without Jesus is not forgiveness. That's just your best efforts to forget. And good luck with that one. Sin is not designed to evaporate. It must be paid for. This is why we're called to forgive for Christ's sake. We have somewhere to put all sin. We have something to cover all sin with. And it's not our own blood and it's not our own effort, but Christ's. The gospel is a gospel of how God, by love, forgives. That's its basic message, is how God, by love, forgives. And you know this, you know all the passages. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we who live, so that we, excuse me, might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the sufficient payment for all our sins. Beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak. This is what our brother Pastor Ant was saying. It's when you sense it and you know you got it when you didn't deserve it. When you shouldn't have got it. It's not just like you were, you were fine, you just weren't the best. We were the worst. While we were weak, still weak. Not like you was getting your energy back in godliness. While you were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the categorical ungodly. For one will scarcely do that for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Oh, we, we, we got the sentencings of Derek Chauvin, right? And what we saw on all the Facebooks was justice was served, justice was served, justice was served, justice was served. And I think that sounds about right. Problem is, we deserve justice too. And what's crazy is, he said, for the bad ones. God came for the bad ones, for the vile ones, for the wicked ones, for the ungodly ones. You, me, those were the evil ones. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God. And that's what we're called to keep showing. You ain't got to get Christmas for me to love you. If that's what it is, that's not from God. You don't got to get sinless for me to cover sin. If that's what it is, that's not gospel. We do it like Jesus did it. Because look what we got when he did it. And he's like, church, let that ricochet. Let that gospel love bounce around. Well, the church should sound like that hymn that our brother Eric me made, but the original has that weight. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, and they pour effectual prayers, and they strongly plead for me. This is why we confess sin, because of what those wounds plead. Forgive, forgive, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him. And Jesus isn't like, I, I got to. No, 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 he's eager to, earnestly. This gospel that shows this love grows this love in us. Here's the appeal, RCF. If this church is going to make it, I believe God has great things planned for this church. But if this church is going to make it as a shining light with salt, it will only be by this church excelling at loving one another earnestly and specifically forgiving a multitude of sins. 
This is the offer of the gospel, right? The offer of the gospel is that forgiveness is always available to anyone who really wants it. Is there any here who, who, who do not know for sure that their sins are paid for right now? Who do not know for sure that Jesus has paid for all? Who couldn't sing with us that Jesus paid it all? Listen up and come and get it. God is eager to forgive all of your sin. He's eager to forgive all of your sin so that you can enjoy all of him forever. He's eager to do it. He initiated so it can happen. And do you know why that offer is available even right now? Do you know why we can say that even right now? Because God loves you. God loves you. He loves you so much that he doesn't leave you in your sin unappealed to. He loves you so much that he sent us to you and brought you to us so that you can right now hear and know and be confident that God loves you. He loves you and he's proved he loves you. And the greatest proof that he loves you, the greatest display of it is that he sent his own son to save you. The Lord Jesus Christ. He came to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, and that is to die for our sin against him. Our sin against God has eternal significance, has forever consequence. It warrants the wrath of God to be poured out on us unendingly for all of eternity. That's just how sinful our sin is, and that's just how glorious the Lord is. But this holy and righteous God desires and delights to show mercy. He is willing to give what we can never earn. And by his grace, he has provided what we never dreamed to ask. Namely, a payment for our sins. Forgiveness from all of them for all time. And life with him now and forevermore. That's why the Bible makes a big deal and calls Christians to make a big deal of what Jesus did at the cross. Because that's where the love of God was made clear. Christ died for our sins. He was raised from the grave with life everlasting to give to everyone who believes in him. And even right now, even right now, if there's anybody here, whether it's a little person, a child, or it's an older person, if you know you haven't turned from a life of sin, if you know you haven't believed his word, if you know you haven't trusted in Christ, if you do right now, he will free you from your bondage to sin, both its power and the call for its payment. Right now, if any would turn from their life of sin, if anyone commits to believe every word that the Lord says, if anyone would trust in their hearts sincerely in Christ's death on the cross, 
in their place in his resurrection from the dead as your hope. Salvation is yours and your sins are all forgiven. Oh, believe him, believe him, believe him. Your sins will be forgiven. He gives forgiveness of sin, a life made new. And he gives all his children a future with him where he is. And that is the Christian life. That's both how it started by God forgiving our sin and it's how the Christian life continues. He, he continues to forgive our sin. Uh, children, listen. Every sin is against God and therefore must be forgiven by God for you to live. No matter how small you think it is. But children, listen. Every sin can be forgiven by God, no matter how big you think it is. Even if you think it can't be forgiven. God is always willing to forgive all our sin, no matter the size, no matter the amount, if we actually trust him. One of the things Peter keeps folding into this church is, and if you know that, you got to show that. You must show that. And it's life-giving to show that. It's life-taking to not. Again, if you know this love, you will show this love. You must. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon on Psalm 133, he says, Christian affection knows no limits of parish, nation, sect, or age. Is the man a believer in Christ? Then he is one in the body, and I must yield him an abiding love. Is he one of the poorest? One of the least spiritual? One of the least lovable? Then he is as the skirts of the garment, and my heart's love must fall even upon him. Brotherly love comes from the head, but it falls even to the feet. What are we trying to show as a, as a Christian church? What are we trying to reflect when we love one another earnestly? One, one of my favorite passages is Romans chapter 8. It's somewhere I go to frequently for encouragement. And I just love how it reminds me of the security of being placed in the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is something we regularly all struggle with. Feeling separated from the love of Christ. Perhaps by how we feel. Sometimes our hearts and minds condemn us. Or perhaps what we experience. Misinterpreting God's providence. But here we have God speaking clearly to us, giving us a sure and solid answer. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither height nor depth nor 
Excuse me, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we say, praise God, hallelujah. You're going through a tough time. It's not to pry you from the love of God. Not possible. Uh, we, we, we read of last, last month, I believe, we had a Christian brother who got beheaded for the faith. Guess what? Was he separated from the love of Christ? Not at all. Not possible. You don't have what you feel you need? Is it because God has restricted his love to you? Not at all. Not possible. What if the devil comes and gets me? Can't happen. Not possible. What if one of his minions also? And that's incorrect. Nothing you don't know about, nothing you do know about, nothing you see, nothing you can't see. Nothing is sharp enough or strong enough to pry one sheep from the father's hand. He saves, he saves to the uttermost, he keeps, and he keeps abidingly. His love is fixed Faithful and steadfast and nothing in all of creation can undo it. And the part that brings it all home, through all these problems, all these hindrances, we know the love of Christ triumphs. Though many things strain our awareness of God's love, nothing can actually separate us from it. And we're supposed to feel that in the church. That's the kind of love that's supposed to reign in the church. What can separate me and you? What's going to cut this love away? If it's Christ's love, we should have the same answers, beloved. Because our love does what God's love does. And his love covers sin. And we're told in the text, a whole lot of it. Committed to forgive and keep forgiving. Committed to cover and to keep covering. Committed to cover sin and a whole lot of it. That should be the motto for every church. Put that on our website. This is why Colossians 3.13, after he says, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, meekness, gentleness, humility. He says, and if, 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 if one has a complaint, you know what we do with complaints? We forgive them. Forgiving each other. And he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also should forgive. It's not what he says, Sister Deb. He says, the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We got to and we get to. God has forgiven. Again, we read his, the, the, the revealing of God's glory and we love the forgiveness stuff. He's forgiven the sins of thousands. So too, we must be forgiving thousands of times over. 
Remember Peter, the one who wrote this. He got this answer from Jesus. How many times are you supposed to be doing this now? Two years, five years, six years, seven years, 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. When God stops with you, you stop with someone. Jesus said, you're, you're, you're not supposed to be keeping count, man. You're not supposed to be keeping count, man. You know why you're not supposed to be keeping count, man? Because God don't keep count, man. That's where he goes from. Listen, we, we're committed to being a merciful member of a church, never an unmerciful servant. Those who know you, let them know to hem you up if you start seeming unmerciful servant eat. The Bible says that stops up everything. We're committed to being merciful members, not unmerciful servants. One is like Jesus, the other's like the devil. Oh, friends, the same way that we ourselves have come to see God's glory. If somebody said, where did you learn the most about the Lord? Where did you see him clearest? Where did his love catch you and bring you in? Where have you been bound to him at? You would say at the cross of Christ. That's where I saw him most clearly, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my sin rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. And now your boy's happy. That happened at the cross. So where you came to see God's glory most clearly, where you think you're going to get to show God's glory most clearly? We love the cross for us. We often despise having to wear it for others. The forgiveness of sin. This is wreaking havoc all over the world. Everybody's talking about what they're entitled to these days. The saints are supposed to say, let me tell you what I got that I didn't earn. You can get some of this too. Jesus' death has secured all our love for all of God's people. For all our days. Which has made us into fixtures of forgiveness. If there's something you want to excel in, if there's something you want to be known by, not only in the world, but even at this church, if there's something you want for yourself, above all, may it be this. I want to forgive like Jesus. And just as there's nothing that can restrict God's love towards us, there's nothing that should restrict God's love expressed through us. And if you would like to know how you're doing with that, just ask. Just ask. Who in this church has offended you? Who in this church has hurt you? Who in this church has sinned against you? Who in this church has displeased you or discouraged you or upset you? I've been a pastor here for a few years. I know it happens all the time. I know I've done it to probably all of you in some way. Where there's a multitude of sinners, there's going to be a multitude of sin. 
But did somebody come to your mind just now? Did somebody's come to your mind just now? Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, search my heart. Who's upset me? And there, this is, there's, a, there's, there's a, a task I want to associate with this. I want you to write down, if there's a name or there's names, write the list down, if you dare. And then I challenge you to go to them. I challenge you to go to them, call them, Zoom them, text them, ask them, say, hey, fellow saint in Christ Jesus, my brother or sister, when you upset me, when you found out I had something against you, can you answer me? And just, just please answer honestly. I want my soul to be helped. Did how I respond to you look like Jesus? Did I remind you of our Savior? Did I remind you of our adversary? Did you, did you feel me covering your sin? Or did you feel like I condemned you for it? Ask, ask those you're related to. Ask your roommate, ask your friend, ask your husband or your wife, ask your children, ask your members, ask your pastors, ask. If you're confused about how you're doing, ask and ye shall receive. We're committed to not letting people who bear the name of Christ not walk in the love of Christ by showing forgiveness. And the reason is because it actually does more than just harm whoever it's harming. It does more than just harm that person themselves. It actually lies about Jesus. And the church is the place where people are supposed to come to see what he's like. I'll never forget, and I know I've told this story before, but sorry. I had sinned against a brother. And um, I had texted him to ask when I could call him to seek his forgiveness. And uh, he responded right away. He made himself available immediately. And, uh, and I called him. And before I could say anything, he said, this is going to be an easy one. He said, let's hear it. I'm ready. And after I shared my sin, he covered it affectionately, mercifully, and joyfully. And I'll never forget how clearly I could hear not just that he forgave me, but he was excited to. And why he told me he was excited was because he says, you have not come close to sinning against me like I have sinned against the Lord. I am eager to cover this. For he has covered my sins entirely. I heard his enthusiasm. I experienced the earnestness of his love and eagerness to cover whatever sin I had mentioned. And what a picture of Jesus that is. He doesn't forgive us reluctantly. Because he doesn't love us reluctantly. He doesn't forgive us begrudgingly. Because he doesn't love us begrudgingly. But he forgives us entirely because he loves us earnestly. He delights and desires to show us mercy. 
And we're supposed to bank on that. That's what makes us run to confess sin. It's knowing what we're going to get met with when we meet him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We never confess our sin nervous about what he'll say. The same thing he did last time, he's going to do this time because he's faithful. And he's never going to start condemning because he's just. Do you know why I'm still a Christian? Do you know why I'm confident I will be a Christian? Because Jesus has covered all my sin. Everything I got, I'm banking on that being true. And I'm thankful that I know for sure that it's true. He not only has covered what I did, but his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover all the sin I will ever do. Indeed, I am a Christian now. I will be a Christian forever because I can never sin my way outside of God's covenant. Certainly someone can show they are outside of God's covenant by refusing to repent of sin, by refusing to obey the Lord. John says that just means they went out from us because they were never of us, right? Someone who has a wrong relationship with sin, we're told has a wrong relationship with God. There's no salvation for anyone who is not committed to repenting of sin as God requires. For those who go on sinning deliberately, they should expect a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But for those who truly trust in Christ, the account of our sin, the accounting for our sin is fully settled regardless of the amount of our personal sin. Jesus paid it all. And in that, he has eternally fastened us and secured us as, recept as, as receptors right, of God's unrestricting love. I'm forgiven. I'm going to be forgiven. Because he's forgiving. Because he loves. And he abounds in love. And his love is steadfast. And a church is supposed to be like that. You should never sin against anybody in this room and not know what you're going to get met with when you go to them. You're supposed to expect it. We're supposed to expect it. Not because we deserve it as sinners, but because they've been bought by Jesus as their savior. Um, when Sonia and I were courting and contemplating marriage, uh, we were at a church. We were sitting in a row of seats. And we were talking about marriage. And <laughs> we didn't know what we were talking about. But we were talking about marriage. And, um, but one thing I did know, I did know I was a very big sinner. And I knew she was a very big sinner. And uh, we had talked 
And I remember us talking about how we're committed to two things being true, guaranteed of it. One, I'm going to sin against her more than anyone else in the world, unfortunately. That's just a fact. As hard as I try, and I do try to not sin against her, I sin against her more than anyone else. And she's going to sin against me more than anyone else. We are going to have sin upon sin. Marriages are just big mountains of a multitude of sin. But we found hope in this passage specifically. But if we keep loving each other in Christ, well, that means we have a remedy for all the sin we'll meet with. We can't out God's sacrifice. That's why I got her a ruby for a ring. We was to remind us, listen, it's, this is paid for by blood. If we love each other like Christians, what will keep our relationship strong will not be our sinlessness, but it's our commitment to cover sin endlessly. Friend, if you have a limit on how much you're going to forgive, I guarantee you, you are going to exhaust that number. And more importantly, that just shows how confused you are about how much God forgives you. Whatever number, if, if someone said how much you think you send against the Lord, if your number is sayable, kids be coming up with all these infinity words, Google Pluxian. It's like, I don't even know what that is, but that one's me. Right? The blood of Christ covers. Right? God is, is eager to cover. We're told we must not grow weary in doing good. God's never need to be encouraged in that. He never grows weary in covering sin. The cross of Christ is there to remind us that the sufficient love that's covered sin is sufficient to cover sin still. And Peter is calling the church. He says, listen, if you love each other, what's going to happen is you're going to keep covering sin. Don't say you love someone if you won't forgive someone. And churches are called to picture that well. Right? In a perverse and crooked generation, in a world completely corrupted by sin, the church is supposed to stand in stark contrast, not as the place where no sinners are. That is not what a church is. That's what heaven is. The church is the place where all the forgivers are. Where those who have been forgiven much, love much. The church is supposed to be a bright witness that the blood of Christ covers a multitude of sins still. That wherever sin abounds, his grace much more abounds. Oh, dear Lord, we want to be this as your people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you how he's forgiven us, how he's loved us. And we so want to be like him. We so want to be with him. Oh Lord, help us to, as long as you'd have us to remain in the body, to be committed to acting like his body, uh, that we would reflect our head, uh, that we would be shaped by his love, and that we would prove and show that we are, in fact, his disciples. I pray that you would bless this church, Lord. May love abound. I thank you that it does in so many ways. We pray it would keep going, that it would continue to grow and expand, and that the testimony would be that we have been faithful to cover sin because you have so faithfully covered ours. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.